Hi friends, welcome back to Nate Talks to His Friends About Jesus. Hey, this, this is a supplementary episode here. We're going to be talking about the atonement of Jesus Christ and different ways to look at the atonement of Jesus Christ. Kind of the history of why we see the things that we do, right? And part of the reason why I wanted to do this extra is because I was talking to a friend the other day and they were telling me about how amazing it was to, to feel that God loved them, even though they felt so broken and unworthy and rebellious. And my first thought when they were saying this is, what on earth are you talking about? See, the, the person I was talking to is a good person, mortal, but, but good. As far as Latter-day Saints go, they don't really rebel. Like they pay their tithing, they attend church, they serve faithfully, they go to the temple. Uh, they're good parents, good disciple, good spouse. So why does this person, this real person feel so bad? Why is this normal human being left with the feeling that somehow they're extra rebellious and extra lost? And the crazy thing that struck me is that they're not alone. For a church filled with members who could not be more concretely linked to the Christ-saving power through priesthood covenants in sacred spaces, a vast amount of us feel like we're not going to make it. Go ahead. Ask a random group of Latter-day Saints if they're going to go to the Celestial Kingdom. Guaranteed, you're going to hear a, a silent pause and some muttered conditionalities and a lukewarm at best response. See, people just don't think they're going to make it. Why is this? Well, I think in part it comes from the story that we've been told about God, uh, about Jesus, uh, about the atonement of Jesus Christ, and what that means for us. The story we've been told is one called the substitution atonement. It says that we are fallen, broken, awful, and sinful. You've been weighed, you've been measured, and you have been found wanting. Like we are bad. And we deserve to get hit so hard that snot blows out of our nose. <laughs> so because we're such a suck fest, God sent his son to suffer in our place, spilling drops of his perfect precious blood because I just can't seem to get my stuff together. He's beat for my rebellion. It just makes me feel bad. But here's the crazy thing. It's not true. At least not how you're thinking about it. It's not in the, the scriptures. And, and there is a completely different fresh and vibrant way to look at Christ, his life, his ministry, and his atonement. If that makes you feel hopeful, come along and let, let me show you what is available. And if you're skeptical or if you don't like uh, that I'm questioning some of your deep held beliefs, just come with me for a bit. I promise what I'm going to tell you does not diminish uh, Christ or his mission. Rather, it will fill your entire being with gratitude for our God and for his divine son. So let's talk about the story of Jesus. Here's what we know. We know God is real. God, as we understand as Latter-day Saints, is our heavenly mother and heavenly father acting in tandem to create order out of chaos. They took pre-existing matter and ordered it into the universe as we know it. Then they placed their children in this universe, particularly on this blue-colored Goldilocks planet. Now their children were designed, were created, were made to carry on the work 
in wherever they find themselves in their local sphere. God's children are meant to be creators within this chaotic system, to be nurturers and builders. But it's not easy to be a creator in such chaos. Life's hard. I know it's a cliche statement, but it's true nonetheless. Death, decay, entropy, poison ivy, contention, self-doubt, whatever, you name it. It makes the mission to be a light bearer imperative and impossible. And by a light bearer, I mean to bear the image of God, to be God's children, to, to do what he's designed us to do. Add to the fact that it's naturally difficult, the fact that there is a serpent, which is a long-standing symbol for chaos. In fact, the, the great serpents are chaos monsters in all the stories. The serpent, the chaos monster, the adversary, which is just Satan in Hebrew, wants to take this pre-existing disorder we find ourselves in and pour gasoline on the fire, strike the match, and watch the world burn like Loki at Ragnarok. The, the real one, not the Marvel one, in case you're wondering. So with the inherent natural difficulty and the added pressure from a supernatural slanderer, that's what you call devil in Hebrew, it's not, it's not a wonder that humans miss the mark, which is honestly the definition of sin in Hebrew, in case you're wondering. Sin just means to miss the mark. We miss the mark or the goal of being creators. We miss the mark of being builders, light bringers that we're meant to be. In fact, the, the Old Testament becomes a nonstop litany of people lying, cheating, stealing, subverting, murdering, afflicting, and abusing themselves, others, and the world. It gets so bad that on more than one occasion, our loving parents hit the reset button, pull out the retro, Netro, <laughs> the retro Nintendo cartridge, blow on it, and start over with scattering floods and captivity. Then God comes down to this world this simultaneous sphere of transcendent beauty and staggering decay. And shockingly, God doesn't come down resplendent in glory with an angelic security detail. Nope. He comes all the way down. He becomes mortal. And not just mortal, he chooses to be born to a poor working class girl who lives in a redneck backwater nowhere of a captive nation where violence and cruelty are social norms. And if that weren't enough, instead of a normal bed in this already low situation, he's laid to rest in an animal feed trough. The first people to know that God has come to earth are some who are at the lowest rung of society, the outcast, the marginalized. He grows up normally for the time, subject to the full scope of humanness, all of it, sickness, disease, doubt, other humans and the awfulness they can throw at you, all of it. And then he began to move publicly in the world to show the nature of God, to demonstrate the human mission here on this earth. And what was that mission? He healed, lifted, transformed people physically, mentally, and spiritually. He showed what it meant to be created in the image of God. It means you cultivate whatever corner of the garden you find yourself in and help it become vibrant and teeming with life. However, his message of service did not sit well with many who liked to feeling special because they were more than others. And Jesus' message of radical inclusion and astonishing generosity grated on them. 
you wouldn't think this message would. But we have become addicted to our, our comparative and competitive lifestyle. It's part of our natural man, natural woman state. It's our ego. Our ego only lives, our natural man only lives if it stands in competition or comparison with something else. And Jesus' message was that everyone was special and all should lift and all should be lifted. To paraphrase syndrome, when everyone is special, then nobody is. So they found a way to murder Jesus. That's just about as low as you can go. And he walked freely into all the rage and torture of the chaos monster. His body was pierced, his blood spilt, and, at, and he asphyxiated with air all around him upon the cross, drowned to death on dry land, on dry land, while being mocked for his pain. Completely exposed, completely abandoned, completely in the human experience including the ultimate end of the human experience, which is death. But and here's the twist. If you need one addition to God himself coming to earth, if you need another twist, he didn't stay dead. He came back to life. Even that's the wrong way to say it. He resurrected. So he had a body, he, he could eat, which is pretty rad, but he could also teleport in this new state. Uh, he could go through walls, appear on different sides of the world without transportation. He was alive, but more than alive, extra, super divine. His resurrection is one of the most historically attested events of the ancient world. Historically speaking, based on documentary evidence, it might as well be considered a fact. Jesus was resurrected. And the message that he rose from the dead just spread like a dry field and a single lit match. It just spread like fire. The message was simple. Jesus was alive. And because of that fact, we would become alive again. And even though you have missed the mark of being the builder, lifter, creator that God intended you to be, you could reconnect with God through this hope. You could begin again in a brand new life as Christ one, as a Christian, as a disciple. And he would infuse you with his divine sustaining power. He would help you bring order to the chaos of this world. You feel it? I know it's a sweet message, right? It's a hopeful message. So when did it become such a heavy message? Well, part of how it got screwed up is just in the fact that we're now living in a chaotic world and chaos sometimes reigns. But part of it is also due to how people started to interpret what Jesus had done. See, even though Jesus comes to earth models God and guides us to the light-bearing path, he doesn't really break down the how of redemption very much. So people were left to work things out for themselves, which honestly seems like how God intends this world to function, where we work and grow and cause others to grow. 
So shortly after Jesus was resurrected, people began to mentally wrestle with what this redemption meant and how it functioned. The Apostle Paul is one of the early and most prolific writers about what Jesus' redemption meant. To interpret Jesus' atonement, his resurrection, his sacrifice, Paul drew heavily on his personal base of knowledge, which was deeply Old Testament mixed with Greek and Roman philosophy. Now, don't discount that as an interpretive base. It, it, was, it was rich, but it was also uniquely his. Then we have others like Origen, Augustine, Bede, Anselm, Francis, Thomas Aquinas, and Martin Luther that also reinterpret Jesus' suffering within their own historical context. And what resulted was this rich, varied, and largely unresolved picture of how Jesus redeems us. These interpretations are then used by us to read into the scriptures. These interpretations shape our lives. And so let's go through a little bit of this history and a little bit of insight into this. So after Jesus' resurrection, there was this rich and varied interpretation of how Jesus' atonement worked and what it meant. And this is important. There was not just one official view. However, starting with the Reformation, there was one retelling of of Jesus' redemptive process that became more popular and dominant than any other. It's called a substitution model of atonement. What it argues is that Jesus came and suffered the penalty I deserve for sinning. He became the whipping boy, and the question became how many drops of precious blood am I responsible for? How much pain did I cause Jesus? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? But believe it or not, this was not the only way. It wasn't even the official way to look at Christ's ministry, about his redemption, about his atonement. And in fact, as far as thinking about Jesus' redemptive work goes, substitution theory is a relative latecomer to the game. The substitutive way of looking at what Jesus did for us can trace its roots back to a guy named Augustine. Augustine lived about 400 years after Jesus Christ in North Africa. His mom was Christian, his dad was not. He grew up a well-off party child. In his autobiography, Confessions, he spends time basically bragging about his sexual escapades and how much he partied. So after 30 years of partying, studying Greek philosophy and dabbling for a decade in a religion called Manichaeism, he converts to Christianity. Then he proceeds to dump all his personal struggles onto Christian thought. And unfortunately, he's really good at it. He's really persuasive and a really good writer. One of his lasting contributions is his idea of original sin. He theorizes that based upon his moral struggles, that humans are born full of evil and sin. It's just the way we're made. It's honestly a pretty bleak take on human beings. And contemporary to Augustine, we have his homie, Jerome, who translates the Bible into Latin, making in his translation one of the biggest errors in interpretation ever made when he translates the word repentance. The word metanoia, 
which means fresh view. He translates as ponitentia. Forgive my Latin and Greek here. You can see right off the bat, though, in the word he uses, the root of penance, which means voluntary self-punishment. So this idea that was fresh view, new life, becomes self-punishment. And so working together at the same time, these two dual incorrect assumptions are passed down the line. One, that humans are inherently evil, and two, that they must be punished for that. Later, much later, 600 years later, 700 years later, uh, a, a man named Anselm comes along. Now, Anselm lived from 1033 to 1109, AD, and he was a very intelligent man. He is considered one of the founders of scholasticism. He, he rekindled in the Eastern world, excuse me, the Western world, a devotion to Aristotle and the concepts of empirical and practical arguments. And near the end of his life, when he's amid an exile for fighting with the king of England, he wrote his seminal work, Cor Deus Homo, Why Did God Become Man? Now, in this book, you can see Anselm's bend towards rationality, and you can see his historical context absolutely seeping through. See, there's two major things going on historically that seem to shape Anselm's thinking. First is the Crusades. Second is the feudal system. When Anselm's alive in 1095, Pope Urban II calls on Catholics to redeem the Holy Land by taking up arms and marching on Jerusalem. Peace could only come to the Holy Land, he claimed, through violence. It needed to be cleansed by violence. Those that died in this sacred undertaking would have their sins remitted and be gathered in heaven, he promised. The feverish crowd listening to him screams, Deus lo volt! God wills it in reply. And the first crusade then commenced. As this mass of humanity traverses Europe, they massacre Jew Jewish communities in Germany. When they arrive in Antioch, they slaughter Christians right along with mu their Muslim targets because they can't tell the difference. Now, I'm not claiming that the crusades caused Anselm to think the way he did. But I want to point out that he is part of a cultural milieu that feels that violence brings cleansing. He's part of this, this culture that, that deserves, believes it's deserved, it's righteous, it's good. And violence is very much a part of this. The second piece of, it, of an important historical context for Anselm is that in 1066, the Normans, which are from France, they come over to England and they conquer and replace the Anglo-Saxon elites as rulers of England. As they conquered, they replaced the existent governing system with a system called feudalism. In feudalism, the king was the only actual owner of the land, and all his nobles, knights, and tenants, called vassals, merely held the land. So, in order to receive a fife, the vassal would approach his lord and swear fealty, from the Latin for faithfulness. In this ceremony, the vassal would approach the Lord bareheaded, weaponless, and would kneel before the Lord with his hands outstretched in a prayer position in complete submission to the ruler. 
The ruler would then take the supplicant's hands in his, showing he was superior in the relationship. Then the vassal would swear never to injure his lord and always be loyal. The words frequently included the pledge to never cause him harm and will observe my homage to him completely. Homage meaning respect, admiration, and adulation do the Lord. So with that background, let's take a look at Anselm's work, Cor Deus Homo. In the book, Anselm frames our relationship with God in a medieval feudalistic system of authority, honor, sanctions, and reparations. He says, quote, honor comprises the whole complex of service and worship, which the whole creation animate and inanimate in heaven and earth owes the creator. So we owe the creator honor. The honor of God is injured by the withdrawal of man's service, which he is due to offer. This failure constitutes a debt, weight, or doom for which man must make satisfaction. The honor taken away must be repaid or punishment must follow. That's the main theme or idea coming from Anselm. We as humans have offended God's honor through our disobedience. And this demands punishment in order to bring satisfaction to God's honor. Hence the title, Satisfaction Theory of the Atonement. Now, this whole idea of owing a debt of honor is probably a bit unfamiliar to us modern suburbanites. So let me give you an example of what he is talking about so you can wrap your head around it a little bit better. In Anselm's lifetime, in 1077, when he's serving as abbot of Beck, Pope Gregory VII excommunicates the Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV. Basically, these two guys had been disagreeing over who had power to appoint officials, and they had been squabbling back and forth for years. Finally, Pope Gregory VII proves that he has more power when he orders the priests under his direction to withhold communion from Henry IV, basically sentencing him to hell. As this happens, the nobles withdraw their support from the emperor and he finds himself in a precarious position. So, having offended the Pope's honor, Henry IV sets out to suffer the requisite punishment and make satisfaction. He does this by hiking through the Alps in the middle of the winter to the castle in Canosa, where the Pope was staying. Once he arrived, the Pope, offended as he was, refused to open the gates to the emperor, who stayed barefoot in a hair shirt, fasting in a blizzard for three days and three nights in a show of penance. Again, penance being voluntary self-punishment. Thanks for nothing, Jerome. After three days, the Pope opened the gate and Henry IV approached on his knees, begging forgiveness, which the Pope granted. But here's the crazy part. Even after all of this, the Pope doesn't support Henry IV's claim to authority, and it's a whole lot of pain with little resolution. This is the framework from which Anselm's um, working from. God's honor has been 
offended by our actions and repayment and punishment is necessary. And even though it is a whole lot of pain and a, a, a little resolution, Anselm's satisfaction model becomes with time a prominent view of how the atonement functions, even though it's not the principal one at the time. Humans have offended God's honor so drastically, is the claim, that no amount of barefoot blizzard begging will ever bring about satisfaction. So Anselm sees it that God sends Jesus, who is capable as a perfectly obedient being of suffering to a degree that the debt of honor will be satisfied and we can thereby be reconciled to God. But where this notion really picks up steam is not necessarily during Anselm's lifetime. It's actually during the Reformation with a guy named John Calvin. So about four or five hundred years later, John Calvin is born in 1509 in France. And he grows up with plenty of opportunity for education thanks to his prosperous father. Though he's interested in the priesthood early on in his life, he ultimately completes his university studies and becomes a lawyer because his father thinks that will pay better. But somewhere along the lines, he starts becoming persuaded by the Reformation theology. And he has this moment where he prays to God, quote, being exceedingly alarmed at the misery into which I had fallen and much more at that which threatened me in the view of eternal death, I duty bound, made it my first business to betake myself to your way, condemning my past life, not without groans and tears. Oh, now, O Lord, what remains to a wretch like me, but instead of defense, earnestly to supplicate you not to judge that fearful abandonment of your word according to its deserts, from which your wondrous goodness you have at last delivered me. Now, once converted to Reformation theology, John Calvin begins to put his training as a lawyer to use publishing and speaking tirelessly tirelessly in favor of the Reformation. Now, John Calvin has his own unique take on theology, and it can be summed up with the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, which stands for Total Depravity, Unconditional Election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of saints. (laughs) Now, his main belief is the total depravity of humans, which, whoa, right? Unconditional election, we'll come back to that total depravity, unconditional election of a few chosen humans to God's love and, and salvation, an atonement limited to saving only those elect few, irresistible grace and perseverance of the saints. Now, Calvin develops his idea of total depravity based on Augustine's theory of original sin that we've already talked about. He claims that because of the fall, humans have become enslaved by sin, radically corrupted and completely unable to choose God. Therefore, those who are going to heaven are not going because they choose, but rather because God chooses, or in other words, God unconditionally elects who will be saved and who will be damned. It has been predestined. It is what it is, and you can't do anything about it. 
So because God chooses who will be saved, there is consequently a limit to the atonement. In other words, Jesus did not suffer for all. He only suffered for those who God has elected to salvation. Which brings us to the idea of irresistible grace. If God has chosen and Jesus suffered, there's nothing a person can do to resist that graceful redemption. It is irresistible. And the saints chosen by this will persevere. Those that are saved are saved and it can never be otherwise. Yeah, honestly, I think it's a sucky doctrine top to bottom. But wait, there's more. As Calvin teaches, he uses his training as a lawyer to conceptualize how the atonement of Jesus Christ functions. He conceptualizes the judgment of God as a courtroom scene. Now that image is familiar to the way we think of judgment day in our modern consciousness. And we can thank Calvin for that. In his courtroom, and in this courtroom scene, we have been found guilty before God. It's who we are. In fact, each person has committed specific crimes against the law of God. And there is a specific penalty that must be paid for each individual crime. This is really the first time this idea of individual crimes and individual punishments being meted out in God's kingdom. Uh, That's interesting. That's a significant 1,500 years after Jesus is when we start getting these ideas tit for tat. Now, I know you, you get eye for an eye type stuff, but Jesus specifically talks above that. And here Calvin is going exactly back to this. So, um, Anselm said that it was a matter of honor and satisfaction. Calvin says it's a matter of wrath. John Calvin proposes that our sins make God so angry, he screams out to punish those who are guilty. And living in the 1500s, Calvin has some very specific ideas of what criminal punishment looks like. First, you have the stockade, where a person's head and arms are locked in stocks and subject to humiliation and ridicule and people throwing stuff at you. Then you have the next level of flogging and branding with red-hot irons. Part of a person's body could also be removed or maimed. Uh, A person could also be sentenced to torture, placed upon a rack which tears a man's limbs asunder. A person could be sentenced to slavery. Death sentences were also common, where you could be slowly strangled to death, crushed, burned, disembodied, or cut apart. In other words, Calvin lives in a world where those who are guilty suffered extravagantly. It's a very violent place. It's a fallen place. And it's in this framework where John Calvin conceptualizes Jesus' atonement. We have all committed crimes against God, therefore his wrath is kindled and he demands a violent punishment. However, since in Calvin's view, our depravity is so complete and God's wrath so monumental that there is no way a human could stand up to its full onslaught. So God sent Jesus to be the punish taker 
What Jesus did in the atonement, according to John Calvin, was to take our place, become our substitute for the penalty we deserve, and he suffered individually for each of our offenses. This theory becomes known as the penal, or another word for punishment, the punishment or penalty substitution theory of atonement. Now, because John Calvin was such a prolific writer and such a prolific speaker, and because he he was so intent on sending out a vast missionary force, his ideas soon became commonplace. His theories influence basically every strand of modern Western Christianity. And even though we as Latter-day Saints officially and categorically don't believe in basically a single aspect of TULIP, we do believe in the basics of penalty substitution atonement theory. And I'm asking, why? Why are we believing a guy who was described by one biographer as irredeemably tedious and malicious, bloodthirsty and frustrated? A man who helped govern Geneva, (laughs) made having a big hairdo a sin, outlawed musical instruments, made singing a lewd song punishable by tongue piercing and consented to the death of many blasphemers. Why is this the guy we're listening to? Calvin says things like this. He says, God then must of necessity look upon us in the person of his own son or else he is bound to hate and abhor us. For since by nature we are unclean and utterly rejected and cursed by God. And he talks all the time about the hatred between God and us. Duh! Honestly, if you want to get a feel for John Calvin's doctrine, go sit in the back of Jonathan Edwards' church in Einfield, Connecticut in 1741 when he delivered his, fa- his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. It goes like this, and it encapsulates rather well what we're talking about. They are now the objects of that very same anger and wrath of God that is expressed in the torments of hell. And the reason why they do not go down to hell at each moment is not because God, in whose power they are, is not then very angry with them, as he is with many miserable creatures now tormented in hell, who there feel and bear the fierceness of his wrath. Yea, God is a great deal more angry with a great number that are now on earth. Yea, doubtless with many that are now in this congregation, who it may be are at ease than he is with many of those who are now in the flames of hell. So that is not because God is unmindful of their weakness and does not resent it. He does not let loose his hand and cut them off. God is not altogether such a one as themselves, though they may imagine him to be. The wrath of God burns against them. Their damnation does not slumber. The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow. The glittering sword is wet and held over them, and the pit hath opened its mouth under them. The wrath of God is like the great waters that are damned for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher till an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course. And once it's let loose, 
it is true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed thereto, hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld. But your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing and you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are constantly rising and waxing only to withdraw, at, withdraw his hands from the floodgate. It would immediately fly open and the fiery floods of the fierceness of the wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were ten thousand times greater than it is yea ten thousand times greater than the strength of the stoutest sturdiest devil in hell it'd be nothing to withstand or endure it the bow of god's wrath is bent the arrow made ready on the string the justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow and it is nothing but the mere pleasure of god And that the angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast in the fire. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in it is a great furnace of wrath a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath that you are held over in the hand of god whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell you hang by a slender thread the flame of divine wrath flashing about it and ready at every moment to singe it and burn it asunder end quote Yeah, you can feel the wrongness of that, right? There are serious problems with the way John Calvin looks at the atonement of Jesus Christ. First of all, this is not the way that Christ's suffering, Christ's atonement is taught for a millennium and a half after Jesus's ministry. Second, it presents a false picture of God. Jesus himself declares that his principal mission is to demonstrate to us God's nature. And nowhere in Jesus's ministry do you see this sort of wrathful condemnation. And I'm even including the cleansing of the temple scene. He may have forcefully cleaned house, but he doesn't chase them down and maim them. You follow? Additionally, if Jesus pays off every sin, that leaves no room for divine forgiveness. Penalty substitution atonement, penal substitution atonement is not divine grace. It's a merchant agreement, a contract to pay so much in return for a promised good. I'm telling you, John Calvin's model for Christ's ministry is not the most useful way to look at the gospel of Jesus Christ. Moreover, the the substitution model doesn't even align with the Old Testament teachings about sacrifice. See, in the Old Testament, animals were not imputed with sin and then killed on behalf of a person. They instead become sacred and were eaten. If the land had become sin, it would have been unclean and it would not have been eaten. Rather, the Passover lamb's blood marks a person as part of God's chosen people, saved as a part of a group collectively rather than individually. And we'll get into that later. 
Theodirat of Cyrus says of 2 Corinthians 5.21, when Christ became sin, Christ was called what we are in order to call us what he is. So yes, he becomes us. Yes, he is in our place. Yes, he is our substitute, but not in the way you are thinking. Not in the way John Calvin is presenting. It's a rescue mission. So I want you to consider that for a bit. And if you're curious, tune into the next supplement and we'll talk a little bit more about what other options are there to look at the atonement of Jesus Christ. See you next time.